Why choose a Sleep Number smart bed? Because no two people sleep the same. Only the Sleep Number smart bed lets you each choose your individual firmness and comfort your Sleep Number setting. The Climate 360 smart bed is so smart, it actively cools or warms up to 13 degrees on either side for your ideal sleep temperature. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number special edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. And welcome to the Parentologist Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kim. The Parentologist Podcast is a show about everything parenting with a therapeutic twist. I have a doctorate in psychology and am a licensed marriage and family therapist, a registered play therapist, university professor, writer, and mom of two. Each episode of the Parentologist Podcast focuses on a variety of topics related to parenting, family, children, and mental health. I'm glad you're here. Hi, everyone. On today's episode, we have Abby and Brian with us. They are the authors of Taking the Stress Out of Homework. I am so excited to share this time with them right now. Hello, Abby and Brian. Hi, Kim. Nice to be here. Hello. So excited for the conversation. I know. Me too. Well, let me tell everyone a little bit about you. You are both weekly education columnists for The Atlantic. You've appeared as experts in The New York Times, Good Morning America, CBS, CNN, NPR, the list goes on. So impressive. You're both classroom teachers, tutors, parents, and you both have master's degrees, which is amazing. And you are co-founders and directors of Teachers Who Tutor in New York City's and it's the only tutoring organization that pairs students with classroom teachers. That's incredible. Thanks so much. It's a busy time. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. I bet. And, you know, we'll go into, you know, a lot, a lot of things that you talk about in your book, um, which I have and I've been reading and I love it. You have so many great tips in there for parents, really practical ones that I feel like are really, really useful um, for parents. So before we get started, Abby, can you please share with everybody how you and Brian first met? Sure, absolutely. So Brian and I were both teaching about 10 years ago now um, at a school in downtown Manhattan. I was teaching fourth grade and Brian was teaching and still teaches seventh and eighth grade English and history electives. And he and I grew up in the city um, and had been teaching and tutoring for many years. And we realized that among the students who we knew who were receiving outside support, the ones who we felt were really thriving the most were those who were receiving additional help from actual teachers themselves. And we realized that among the umpteen uh, tutoring companies in the city and elsewhere, all of them were comprised of um, primarily bright Ivy League grads who were actors or writers, but didn't necessarily have a background or pedagogy in teaching. And we very much wanted to um, to start an organization so that uh, students could really be supported by professional classroom teachers who understood the pedagogy and how to actually collaborate with classroom teachers and with parents to really support kids in terms of lifelong learning and skill development. Right. That's amazing. I can't believe you've known each other for 10 years. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Long um, time. Yeah, long time. But that's great. You know, you definitely cultivate, um, you know, obviously a friendship over the years. And now you've cultivated a business over the years, which is, which is incredible. For sure. Um, and it started with, sorry, it, it started with us, you know, a small idea. And then we, we started off with just a few classroom teachers. And it's really grown quite a bit over the years as we've realized that the demand for students working with classroom teachers is really quite high. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Brian, I would love to hear from you. Um, now, your book just launched, um, Taking the Stress Out of Homework, just launched, which is incredible. Congratulations. Thank you so um, much. Yeah. But I would love to hear, you know, after this, you know, 10-year friendship, you know, that, you know, started in, into a, a business and whatnot, you know, what inspired you to finally write a book? Absolutely. Well, it fast forward seven or eight years from where Abby left off. And Abby and I had been having conversations with parents, you know, over and over again. Every day we'll each talk to a few parents. And there began to be overlaps between the conversations that we had. And as opposed to the first couple of times we had them where we wanted to be able to help that individual, after we heard the same set of anxieties or stresses or problems to solve, you know, dozens and dozens of times, we saw that there was a a market for, and more importantly, an opportunity to um, get the answers to these questions out to the wider world. So as opposed to just people in the New York City area who were looking for tutors for their specific kids, we wanted to be able to, you know, for 15 bucks, put all those answers to all the questions that every parent in the country is having into an accessible book-length form. And we found an agent who was excited about the idea, sold it to Penguin, and the rest is history. Yeah, that's amazing. I love it. I, I'm actually in the middle of writing my first book proposal and I'm super nervous and I think I'm, I'm, I'm still, I have to, you know, send it off and try and find an agent myself. And I'm still at that level, which I'm sure you can remember being there too. Um, and I'm, I'm just super nervous about it. Um, what, what kind of got you over that hump? I mean, what, I know you had, you know, two people versus, you know, um, that might've helped just to kind of bounce, you know, off, you know, each other, but, um, but what, what kind of got you over that? Um, Abby, I'd love to hear from you of, you know, how you, how you work together, um, in making the dream that you had into an actual reality. Sure. So, I mean, I had the benefit, frankly, of Brian having been a writer far before I ever put, you know, pencil to paper, finger to keyboard. Brian had already um, published two novels. So, but really it was that we had um, sort of individual sets of expertise within different age ranges. I had worked more with younger students, Brian slightly more with older students, but then, you know, sort of in that Venn diagram overlapping area, we both had worked extensively with middle schoolers. And, um, what we really did at first is just to write out all of the ideas, um, that we had just in terms of how we could best support kids in terms of the questions that we had. And then we really sort of ping ponged back and forth. So I would write a chapter on all my ideas and then I would hand it over to Brian and Brian would do the same. So it was really very much a collaborative effort, um, both in in the book writing um, and in the Atlanta column that we write to it. Um, we, we're lucky in terms of um, our, our strengths and our challenges, um, both as both as teachers and as writers. It, it really works well to kind of get our ideas down on paper and then bounce ideas off of one another. Um, and we usually do several rounds. I mean, with the book we did, I, I have lost track of how many rounds of edits <laughs> we did, but it, you know, what we often did is just kind of to add ideas, you know, as the days went on, we had the benefit of working with students and saying, Oh, you know what? I just did such and such today. And this is something, a strategy that I'd really like to add, um, to let parents know, here's another way that they might view a a particular situation or try to help with their kids. Yeah. And I love that you used real life. Go ahead, Brian. I just want to say that I love that you used real life examples and actually put them in your book, which we're going to dig to dig into in just a second, I promise. But, um, I'm just so inspired by both of you and what you've done and how you help so many parents 
And I hope to do follow in some of those footsteps and do the same thing. Um, but yeah, just, you know, hearing your journey and, you know, what you've done is just, it's very impressive. And it's such an inspiration to someone like myself, who is an aspiring writer and who wants to help parents. We both have that in common, which um, I absolutely love. But Brian, go ahead. What were you going to add to that? I was just going to say, Kim, that as you're you're saying that the, the writing not only benefits the readers, but I think has made Abby and me better educators ourselves. You know, just sure. in the same way that we tell our students to to brainstorm lists of ideas and then create a first draft or a journal entry that turns into the finished product, needing to articulate exactly what we do in the classrooms and what we do individually individually with students has at least for me. I don't know how Abby feels, but at least for me, made me feel more confident in the ways I would scaffold assignments for students or I would approach students needing to articulate not only the practice, but the theory behind the practice, I think has been a wonderful exercise for us as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's great. I love that. I love that. Well, you can help me. I'll send you my draft. You can help us be better parents. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. We, we do have kids in the same age group, which I think is amazing. So yeah, yeah. that way, you know, we can bounce ideas off each other for sure. But let's dive into your book a little bit, because that's what I think people are going to be listening for is, is the tips that you have in it. So, um, so let's just talk first about um, executive functioning. I know you talk a lot about that in your book. Can you describe to everybody what executive functioning is and why it's so important? Brian, why don't you go ahead and, and share this for us? Sure thing. So executive functioning um, is comprised of the steps that are needed to take to complete every task that one wants to during a given period of time. So executive function, functioning means organization. It means trying to figure out exactly what needs to be accomplished and what in what order it is best accomplished. It involves breaking larger tax, tasks down to smaller tasks. And we see that in lower school, you know, starting kindergarten through third or fourth grade, Often students can get by just by seeing what's in their backpack or what homework might be and taking it out and doing their best to get through it and putting it aside and taking the next task out. But when students begin to get in that fifth through eighth grade range, we see that those executive function skills become increasingly important. So that's when students need to start organizing. They need to start having a sense of everything they need to accomplish and the steps with which they'll accomplish it. Um, in a grown-up's life, you know, when you, for example, make dinner for your family, you know that in order to make dinner, you need to preheat the oven, you need to buy the groceries, you need to start with the ingredients, you need to combine them in some specific order, you need to set a timer, take it out, serve, etc. And all of those are individual tasks that you know need to build up to the large project. For 10, 11, 12, 13-year-olds, those tasks, especially when it comes to academic work, aren't as obvious. And that's when an executive function framework becomes necessary. Wonderful. So Abby, can you expand on that and share, and I'm sure you mentioned this in your book too, which everyone it's on Amazon right now, you can just get out and get it yourself because it's amazing from what I've read so far and I can't wait to read the rest. But Abby, will you expand on that a little and just share about how parents can help teach their children some of those executive functioning skills? Sure, absolutely. So I think that really starting with third or fourth grade, what you want to do is start to look a little bit ahead to later in the week or the following week to see what's coming up. So it could be even if third and fourth graders don't necessarily have a long-term assignment, there might be something like, okay, one day there's a soccer game and then you know you have to pack something for the weekend and just figure out in what order 
kids should be doing that and when they're going to do it. Because kids tend to, like so many adults, want to leave the thing that's easiest for last. And that's really tricky because that's when kids are the most exhausted. And that's where a lot of um, arguments and tears kind of manifest themselves. So executive function is, is so important because it really helps kids set themselves up for success. And um, one of the best ways to do it is to have a big whiteboard. It could be in a shared space um, in a house or in, in an apartment, or it could just be up in a child's room. And they can literally just write down, Could they could even make like a little calendar or write down the days of the week and really start to back plan. So say um, on Friday, they're going to have, so if they're in middle school, if they have a paper due, rather than on Thursday night writing, write paper, there are umpteen steps as Brian was describing in terms of, you know, even making a recipe as adults that we just sort of intuit. The kids need to keep in mind and really start doing, let's say a week or two weeks in advance. So perhaps the first day might Monday, they might be figuring out what their thesis is going to be, their working thesis, and perhaps their topic sentences. And then the next day they can gather evidence to be sure that those body paragraphs are going to work correctly. And then the following day, they can actually write a draft and then they leave a day to proofread. And then, you know, that way by Friday, um, they will be very well prepared and Thursday night won't be a complete disaster where they're trying to combine um, numerous steps that each require time and thought and energy, all sort of smushing it into one um, stressful evening, which really does a disservice to the child, you know, and they're trying to sort right. of do their best, but it's, it's all kind of new to them having these multi-step processes and these longer term assignments. And that's, again, you know, as adults in our daily life, we're constantly juggling both short-term and long-term projects and really helping kids figure out for themselves what those various components are and what it should look like. And starting with whatever's hardest first, I can't um, emphasize that enough, both as a teacher and, and as, as a parent of, uh-huh. of two young boys, um, having them get that out of the way first. So then when they're tired, they can do sort of whatever feels easiest or most fun for them, um, is just the, the best all around for, for the student and just family dynamics at large as well. Absolutely. And I have to say, since we um, talked last and um, you've given me that advice, my daughter actually had, she's a first grader, as you remember, and she actually had an assignment, a couple assignments due for homework the other day. And she really didn't do this, want to do this one assignment. And it was kind of the longest one and was going to take the most time. And she didn't want to do it. And the other ones, she's like, well, I want to start and do these ones first. And I said, no. I said, let's do the hardest one first, and then we'll follow with the ones that you really want to do after. And she was, you know, complying. And she said, okay. And, you know, she tried it. And it was amazing. She got it done, got it out of the way, and um, then did the other assignments. And then she was done for homework for the day. And it was incredible. So thank you for your wonderful advice. It was. <laughs> of course. I mean, to me, it's really akin to the idea of like, all of us would rather eat dessert first instead of dinner. Sure. But then of course, we're full <laughs> and we've eaten the really sort of crummy, sugary stuff first. It's, it's the same thing. It's like, if you do, you know, what you need to do, it's what's best for you. And then you can look forward to doing the more sort of fun, pleasurable thing thereafter. Exactly. And I really love the idea of a visual schedule as well, or a visual, um, like you say, get a whiteboard and kind of write out all the steps of everything you have to do for like a particular assignment. Or I mean, even for that day, I mean, even for me, like with all the different things that I have, 
you know, um, in a day of the responsibilities that I have, you know, for myself, for my work, my household, um, you know, just writing it out and having um, a, a visual schedule, I feel like is good. And it also kind of externalizes it. So it's not yes. all like, you know, crumbled up in your head and you, have, you don't remember everything. And then I feel like that in- increases the stress and the anxiety of whatever's at hand. If it's on paper and you can see it and you can visualize it and externalize it, then I feel like it's, it's, um, it's more apt to get done and it's more, um, just, um, it feels more manageable to get done because it's, it's on paper like that. So I love that advice too. Absolutely. Especially because kids usually tend to write something in their planner and then the planners close. So it's like out of sight, out of mind, or perhaps it exists in like a homework portal online. And again, it's the kind of thing where, well, if the homework portal isn't open, then it's very easily easy to say, oh, I'm just going to sort of push X, Y, or Z to the side. Um, And the other thing is just that kids tend to really feel a sense of autonomy. There's something about like expo markers that makes middle schoolers feel <laughs> sort of like grown up and it's still like they're little because middle school is such a tricky age in terms of being caught between, um, you know, some of the more like innocence of lower school, but also the, the pull of being a teenager. And just there's, there's something about like writing with fun colored expo markers that makes them feel like it straddles both of those, um, those age divides in kind of a, a just right way, I would say. Exactly. Exactly. I agree. Um, and I know, Brian, you work with middle schoolers right now. And I know I'm going to throw this question at you, Brian. Um, you know, it's been a tough year. Uh, we've all been there, you know, as, as I'm sure as, you know, educators and as parents and students have had a really tough year. Um, some are still completely, you know, learning virtually. They haven't stepped in, foot into a classroom in over a year. Um, so how, you know, what advice do you have or, you know, for the kids that really aren't, aren't motivated to learn right now? Um, they just have no motivation to even sign on to their computer to go to school what recommendations do you have for parents um, for a child that refuses to do their homework or doesn't want to do their homework? Well, I think that the, the most important thing is to choose empathy over frustration because we, we I, I think that all of us are battling those within our own lives. You know, we're like, mm-hmm. when do we allow ourselves to say this year has been un? bearable for so many reasons. Like how important is it that I take out the trash right now or that I do this assignment for school or at work or that I, you know, have the conversation that I don't want to have with my partner. Like everything feels like it's overwhelming and that's for grownups. So like, of course, for a 15 year old who all he or she wants is to like run outside and screaming with friends and not be around parents to be stuck inside, especially in remote learning, to be isolated from their friends with their parents at these different ages, the idea of then needing to sit down and do 30 math problems before outlining a history paper is like necessarily awful in, in, yeah. their, in their mind. So I, I think that um, empathizing with them and having that discussion about like, we know this is hard. What's nice is now with the nicer weather and with the vaccinations uh, becoming somewhat more uh, frequent and ubiquitous, there, there is an end at sight. And just saying like, okay, this is why you're being asked uh, to perform these tasks. If there's some of it that just seems unbearable to you, like, let's talk about that. And maybe we don't need to focus on something where we normally would need to during the, uh, during a regular year. But like, we only have a couple months until summer. Let's figure out what in your life we can do to make this more bearable. And if that's creating more outside 
social time with friends, like we can build that into the schedule. If it's cutting back on an enrichment or an extracurricular activity that seems to be adding to stress, like do that. Where as opposed to parents so often feel in this position, like I can't let my kids fall behind. I can't let them take a day off. I have to show them the right behavior all the time. What we're all dealing with psychologically now is such that, I mean, this is your more your expertise than ours, but it's, it's so overwhelming that some of the academic work uh, can be divided into what is necessary to do now, what do we hold for later, and what maybe isn't as significant this year, and giving the student autonomy over helping make those decisions so the student can decide, you know, I really see for school that the math worksheet needs to get done because otherwise my math teacher, you know, will scream and yell and make a whole thing out of it, whereas maybe some of these other long-term assignments I can ask for an extension or not care as much about, giving the student the independence and autonomy will encourage him her to just feel better about the whole process. Absolutely. And I know one thing you mentioned um, the other day when we spoke, Brian, um, was that teachers love when kids reach out to them and, you know, come up with a plan together on how to tackle whatever it is, with it, whether they need an extension on an assignment or if they don't understand something, they need some extra time, you know, trying to figure out how to do it. Um, will you expand on that a little bit more? Absolutely. So, I mean, always uh, teachers love it when students are self-motivated enough and stand up for themselves and are willing to, at the end of a question or the end of a class that's difficult, ask the questions that will help them understand the material better, as opposed to going the other direction, which is that sort of resignation, oh, this is too hard for me, I'll Google it later, I'll look it up online, I'll figure it out. Um, students taking the initiative and going to the teacher and saying, I care about this work, but I don't understand it or I need a little bit of extra clarification, can you help, is a dream when it comes to um, a teacher's relationship with a student. This year especially, it's all the more important because whether it is through remote learning, trying to get a sense of how a student is doing through a screen or even a student mm -hmm. in the classroom you know, is masked up and it's hard to read the facial um, impressions and the smiles or the scowls or the whispers, teachers feel like there is a barrier, an obstacle between us and them at this moment in a way that we've never felt before. So anytime a student is willing to give us some insight onto their lives, whether it's academic or psychological or social or anything that can provide us with a better opportunity to help them learn the material we're teaching, we are eager for that information. I love that. I love that. And I, I try to encourage that to, you know, parents all the time that are, you know, having trouble, you know, with, with school and, um, and even like you, um, you had mentioned, you know, a child self advocate advocating, you know, for themselves and actually reaching out to the teacher. Like yesterday, my daughter actually went back to school for the first time yesterday. And it was just for a little bit just to kind of, you know, get their feet wet and learn where their classroom is and, you know, all of that. Mm -hmm. And my daughter came home and said, well, I can't see the person in front of me is taller, you know, or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And I can't see my teacher. I can't see the board. And I said, well, why don't you, why don't you tell your teacher, you know, why don't you yep. tell her what the problem is. And she said, no, 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 mom, I want you to email her. Can you just tell her? And granted, she's only seven, you know, so right, I, right. I get that we're trying to, you know, <laughs> sure, teach it sure. at a young age, but, you know, we're talking more middle schoolers and high schoolers and having them self-advocate. But, but even yesterday, you know, she's seven, but I said, I think it's, I think she'd rather hear it from you. Like, how about you tell, you know, your teacher or, you know, when she said yeah. trouble in the past with an assignment, I tell her to 
it's like a little voice memo they can leave when they were, you know, completely virtual. And I said, why don't you leave her a little voicemail? And, and she would, you know, and I think it's, it's great to have to teach that skill at such a young age, because that'll really come in handy in obviously middle school and high school, but even beyond in adulthood to be able to self-advocate to get your needs met and get what you want. Um, I, I think that's just such a great skill to have. So such a wonderful yeah. example you bring up because that idea of for a first grader, a taller student in front of you is like an insurmountable obstacle, you know? Like it, it feels so overwhelming and you don't know how you're going to deal with school and everything becomes Mm -hmm. difficult and hard. Um, So teaching that kind of self-advocacy there is important because then when you get into, you know, uh, advanced chemistry and you have that same feeling that like, I just don't understand molarity. Like, what does this mean? What is Avogadro's number? I'm never going to understand that. It's a similar feeling and learning in first grade that teachers are, accessible in the way that you taught your daughter is important. And if your daughter in that position doesn't feel like she, you know, she doesn't know, maybe she knows the teacher in this situation well, so she is able to ask the question. If a first grader feels, you know, I don't have that relationship yet, even just modeling that behavior for a child and saying, and saying like, you know what, I'll do it this time. I'll reach out to the teacher. Um, the student will see that teachers aren't going to start screaming at you or her and, you know, make a big deal out of it. The teachers will fix the situation and that might make the student even more willing at that year or as he or she gets older to advocate for herself. Absolutely. uh, Sorry to interrupt. I I think the other thing is that just like asking questions and um, modeling for, for our children, um, as parents, just that we don't all have the answers and that as children, we don't expect them to have the answers and teachers certainly don't expect that either. And that actually asking questions, um, as you were saying, Brian and Kim, is a sign of engagement and curiosity. And curiosity. And I think that so much of what we're going through right now demands those questions even more. And just acknowledging that like, this is messy and that we don't have all the answers and that we as adults are sort of trying to sift through things and figure out how to best process the world around us. And engaging our kids in that discussion in a really authentic way is important because I think that what kids worry about is that they need the right answer or everything is just very product oriented. And I think if we um, are very honest about the, the, uh, difficult process of working through a lot of these situations, we can really best help our kids to to self-advocate and to figure out, um, you know, h- how to make the best of these really difficult situations. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, so yesterday I, um, I you know, said, okay, well, I'll email her, but I'm going to tell her in the email that I'm, you know, that I asked you to talk to her about it tomorrow too, you know, type thing. Mm-hmm. So she knew that it was, you know, on both of us. And so I ended up emailing the teacher and she was there with me and I read her everything that I wrote. So she, like you said, to model it for her so she could learn, you know, the words to say and, you know, and whatnot. And, um, you know, I wrote in the email, you know, she can't see the person in front of her. Um, I'm not sure what solution that, you know, we can come up with, but I just want to let you, you know, I I want you to be aware of the problem. And um, I told her that if, you know, you can talk about it maybe together because parents aren't allowed on campus. So it's not like I can go and find what her classroom looks like right now. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, but I said, you know, when she's there tomorrow, if, you know, if you just want to keep an eye out and then, you know, 
see if, you know, she wants to talk to you about it, you know, that'd be great. And then she emailed back almost immediately and said, oh, I noticed I didn't see her yesterday either. So I already switched around the desk and it's already done. You know, I didn't even know she also knew the problem and, and fixed right. it. But I told my daughter, I said, well, it's been fixed and this and that. And she was relieved. And But like you said, I think in that case, and especially because she's seven, but but I was able to model that for her. And I think that's a lot of times, you know, what's helpful to children and, you know, goes into my next question about reading. You know, we've talked a lot about assignments and, you know, maybe doing the hardest one first and having a whiteboard and writing out all the different steps it takes to get something done. If it's, you know, let's say a, a, a term paper or some type of a big assignment type thing. But I know one thing, especially maybe because my, my, my child's little and, you know, they're both kind of at that age where they're starting to read. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of parents will say, oh, my child just hates reading. They don't want to read. It's, it almost is looked at as an extracurricular activity because right. it's not an actual assignment that you turn in. Mm-hmm. It's something you do in your quote unquote spare time. Right. <laughs> um, but obviously reading is extremely important. Um, and I could go into that a whole nother podcast just on reading, but um, but Abby, what have you found, you know, helpful when it comes to, um, you know, helping parents encourage their children to read more and why is that so important? Well, I think the most important thing is just to start with the child's interests and use that as a lens through which to, you know, approach reading versus saying we're going to talk about reading overall. Because I think that kids who shy away from reading or kids who feel like they're, um, you know, quote unquote, not good readers um, are, uh, it, it, it tends to do with a lot of sort of external pressure that they might feel from their parents or their teachers or just other adults in general. Um, and I mean, reading and exposure to, to reading is incredibly important, whether, you know, you're reading to your child in an early age, if perhaps they're a reluctant reader and then they begin to read on their own or you do shared reading. Um, but I think really the most important thing is when kids are young, especially, you know, if they're in, um, kindergarten, pre-K, first grade, even second grade, um, making reading fun. So, you know, figuring out what they're really into. If they're into superheroes, great. Even if you think the book is garbage, it doesn't matter. If they're reading and they're enjoying the story, that's fantastic. Um, And really trying to help, um, help your children connect with the text. So there are three sort of primary ways that, um, teachers try to help kids engage with the text. So the first is um, thinking about, does this story remind you of another story? So it could be something like, you know, if you're reading about my kindergartner is, is very into superheroes right now and Spider-Man in particular could be mm-hmm. like, does this, remi- does this remind you of something that Batman did on one of his adventures? Or it could be, you know, something about, um, something from another story. Does the way Spider-Man's helping his friend remind you of the way that Frog and Toad helped one another when they were on their picnic or, you know, whatever text you're comparing to the other text is one way of um, drawing a literary connection. Another way is thinking about text to self. So does what happened in this story remind you of something that you did? So if you're reading, you know, Amelia Bedelia, who is um, a housekeeper who does all kinds of very, very silly things and takes everything literally. Um, Those are such cute books. We love them too. <laughs> they're, they're great. So does this remind you of something silly that you did one time? Or um, the other way is really text, connecting the text to the world. And that's something that becomes sort of increasingly more sophisticated as kids get older and is a little bit harder to do with a first or a second grader. But thinking about, 
is there any theme here? So maybe if there's somebody who's throwing trash on the beach, does this have to do with any bigger theme that you've seen in the world in terms of like conservation and taking care of our world? And just by breaking down for kids ways of connecting with whatever they're reading, it's just a great way to have them love reading and want to do it more and feel more invested in it personally so that it's like their book and they're seeing it through their own individual perspective versus having something sort of thrust upon them. And when reading can feel more organic and enjoyable, it's when kids want to do more of it. And that's really what's going to help them to become better readers. So the more can become just a fun way that you spend time with your kids and chat about books. And, you know, if they want to play dress up or draw pictures or make predictions, that's all wonderful. And I would say to just keep it very sort of light in terms of the pressure and, and just a lot of um, focusing on what your child wants to, wants to read about in the first place and less sort of being worrying about genres and that kind of thing with younger children. Exactly. And that's actually something that I do too. And I mean, they're young, so it's, it's fun to do this, you know, while I can and while they let me, but, um, you know, we'll take books and we'll, you know, let's say it's a book about, um, a spider. And so then we'll actually, you know, do like a spider craft. Like I'll take a paper plate and we'll paint it black and then we'll add little legs on it and, you know, make an actual spider craft along with the book. And then we'll have maybe a snack where I take, you know, long pretzels to make them into spider legs and we'll make it as, you know, whatever the case. Right. Super fun. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Well, you can absolutely <laughs> make it come to life and, yeah. you, know, um, you know, be able to make it more tangible. Brian, I think you mentioned um, on, on that note, um, I can't remember if it was, it was um, Brian or Abby, but um, something about not making, you know, if, if a child says, okay, read for 30 minutes, um, you know, just, do you know what I'm talking about where it's, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you, you help me out here. <laughs> no, no, sure thing. So th- this fits into exactly the conversation that you and Abby were just having uh, so much of the research that's coming out around early childhood um, numeracy and literacy focuses on that idea of these uh, skills, you know, whether reading or math, should be seen as potential sources of pleasure and joy as opposed to chores or, or labor. And in terms of page numbers, you know, that fits in because telling a, telling a kid, Hey, we get to read a story. Like, let's see what happens. And the story is, you know, anywhere 10 to 15 pages, 20 pages. And there's an opportunity to be excited to hear the story, the beginning, middle and end. That is a positive experience theoretically for the kid. Whereas if you say, okay, now sit down and read for 30 pages, the kid will be constantly looking forward and saying like, oh, like I've done 12, I have 18 more pages. Like I, well, actually that might be good for math, but they say like I have 12, I have 18 more, like I can't, I can't do like, so when it comes to reading in the beginning, as both of you were saying, as opposed to seeing it, it's like, this is a skill that you must learn in the same way, like you must tie your shoes or you must brush your teeth. This is just like a fun thing we do at night, you know, and maybe I'll start by reading you the entire book and you can read a sentence every time if you want, or maybe that'll turn into a paragraph, or maybe you can dress up or draw a picture or bake a snack or whatever it is. But seeing these early ventures into reading and math 
not as chores and skills that kids must learn in order to, you know, get ahead or be complimented by their teacher, but just as like opportunities to have some fun in the same way that playing with Legos are an opportunity to have fun. The uh, ways that we as parents approach it are so important, which is why saying things like, oh, when I was your age, I hated math too. Don't mm-hmm. worry about it. You just have to do it is the opposite of the approach you should be taking because that creates a permission structure to see math as this awful thing you just have to get through um, as opposed to enjoy and strive with and, you know, see as a good sense of self uh, building opportunity. So it's that, it's that difference between seeing this as, okay, grin and bear it and get through it because this was awful for me and it's awful for you. And that's what childhood is versus like, this is fun. Let's count how many forks we have and see how many people could eat with this number of forks. Even <laughs> right. though the kids know you're faking it a little bit. Like th- th- those two approaches are so different in terms of how they make children think about course material from the beginning. Exactly. And, you know, that's, I also try to do that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm learning as I go, you know, because I'm, she's first grade. And so I'm, you know, just I'm learning each grade that she grows up, you know, how to structure things and handle things and and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Um, But I know you meant you both mentioned this and how it's important to model. And so sometimes if she doesn't want to do something in that moment, usually she loves reading and she loves art. Those are she really Mm -hmm. does love both of those. Um, But if there's a time where she doesn't really feel like reading in that moment, because she probably would rather maybe go outside and play or something, Mm -hmm. or maybe it's before bed, and she's so tired or whatever the case may be. Um, I'll say, well, how about I read with you? And then I'll get a book and she'll get a book and we'll just sit down for just a few minutes, you know, nothing major, but just a few minutes. Or the other day she had a directive draw art kind of assignment that she had to get done and she just didn't want to do it. And I don't know why, because she loves drawing and she usually loves doing those assignments, but she didn't want to do it. And so I said, you know what, I'll do it with you. And so we both sat down with our own pieces of paper and we both did the directive draw. And it not only was good for her because she got her homework done, um, but we made it fun. I did it with her and it was a great bonding experience and a totally, great yeah. experience for us you know yeah I absolutely have, I think that, that's that's such a such a great thing to do Kim and I actually with my older son who because of remote learning and he's in school all day and then I'm working all evening I feel like we have so little time together and he reads every night before bed so what I've started doing and usually you know I would just tend to be drawn to my phone or my work emails. He and I also get out a book. And even if we're both sitting there reading independently, it feels like we're having that special time sort of together. Um, And sometimes we'll end up chatting a little bit and then we'll read, but it's just a really lovely time to carve out with your kids, especially that's away from devices in any capacity. Exactly. And just to add, to, to, to jump in, because I'm sure there are going to be parents out there listening to this thinking, great, so your kids love to read, like that great for you, like your problem is they don't like to read sometimes, whereas we have kids at home who are, you know, refusing to do any of it. I, I think it's important to, to acknowledge that like different kids come to these activities at different times. And that's not indicative of anything for middle school or high school or beyond. You know, how, how, how young a student is when he or she begins reading has no correlation at all to the grades that that student is going to get in seventh, eighth, ninth grade. And like also, there are moments of frustration and antagonism and tantrums and anger. And in those moments, it's okay as parents to say like, okay, like 
we don't need to read now. And if you, if some parents say like, you know what, like you go do what you want and I'm going to sit here on the couch because I like reading, you know, and that mm-hmm. just showing a kid that reading is something that parents might do for pleasure. And one day they might as well is a small victory as well too. So it's not, it's not as though every um, evening you need to have this perfect result of being cozy oh, yeah. together and, mm-hmm. and reading and accomplishing your goals. Like sometimes it's enough for the kid to storm away frustrated and you would, and then just to look over his or her shoulder and see you on the couch happily reading a newspaper or a magazine and a book. Like that can be a lesson in and of itself. So as, mm-hmm. as opposed to feeling overwhelmed by situations where students just are so far away from where parents want them to be academically or, you know, in terms of accomplishment, you know, the tiny baby steps in any direction towards demystifying something or making something seem like a more enjoyable activity can be a success. Yeah, absolutely. And I also want to note too, because you mentioned that, that not every night I can sit and read with my daughter and not every night can I sit and do a directive draw with her. You know, I mean, parents are busy and overwhelmed and have so many, you know, balls are juggling in the air and just, you know, have so many responsibilities that it's not going to happen every night. Like you said, like that was kind of a special occasion and it was great and it worked and it was awesome. Um, But there's some nights where I, you know, we don't read at all because, Mm -hmm. You know, it's a busy day and we just go straight yeah. to bed and we're exhausted, you know. So I just want parents to, you know, to give themselves grace too and just let, you know, that they don't have to be these quote unquote perfect parents that mm-hmm. help their children and sit down with them every night and do homework. And those you know, parents right. don't exist. They're, they're- there are some nights where you don't read before bed. There are also some nights where everybody screams at each other and starts crying and then falls asleep. Like, like life, is, life is hard. Yeah. So if if you can, to any extent possible, try to get a book in there once in a while. Like, fantastic. Yeah. But don't don't make yourself. Um, you know, don't don't chastise yourself if if you're not doing that as a regular part of your daily routine. Exactly. And I know, I think Brian, you mentioned this to me, you know, just there's that pull between downtime and academic time and academics are very, very important. But then, you know, there's also another side of life that's also important and that's playing and being kids. Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure thing. So I I think that often parents almost um, use playtime as a manipulable tool when it comes to academics. Like, if you get this done, then you can go have fun. Or, you know, you haven't earned your video game time yet, or whatever it is. But, like, that video game time might be the time when um, children are socializing and when they can be themselves among their friends. And it's important not to create this either or situation where work life and school life is terrible. And then there's this other, you know, panacea on the other side of it where like that's full of joy. It's important to recognize that life is really hard these days for all of us. It's really hard for kids. And as opposed to saying, you know, okay, right now we have an hour and right First, you have to accomplish these goals and then you can relax and have some, have some fun. Kids are very different. And sometimes the kids need to relax before they're able to uh, accomplish work at a more sophisticated level. And again, giving students a little bit more flexibility where they can decide, you know, they know that over the course of the weekend or over the course of the afternoon or over the course of the next half hour, they need to accomplish certain goals. But letting them try to figure out how they learn best, how they work best, how they enjoy life best is an important part of growing up. So if they say, hey, I know that when I stop my official Zoom school work 
before I can get into my homework, Zoom school work, or, uh, you know, not over Zoom, but a computer program. Like, I need to just be outside and kick a ball around with a sibling. Like, they should learn that about themselves. And that type of relaxation or that type of play can turn into better academic work in the long run anyway. Absolutely. And I, I advocate that for parents too, and just say, you know, um, self-care seems so cliche these days because we use it so much, you know, in overall wellness. But, you know, the more I take breaks, the more productive I actually am because I'm not, you know, burning the candle at both ends. Like I'm not, you know, burnt out yet because I'm actually taking time for myself, you know, filling my cup and then I'm able to, you know, get better work done or focus better on, you know, the assignment at hand. And I feel like, you know, kids, like you were just mentioning, you know, it's the same way. Um, okay, I know we're almost out of time. I have two really quick questions because I just love your advice. Um, so, Abby, um, I know we had mentioned, um, you know, how to eliminate distractions and, you know, healthy habits around homework. And I know part of that is the environment the child is doing their homework in. Can you mm. briefly just talk about the importance of, you know, where a child sits and does homework and how to eliminate some of those, some of those distractions and even like, you know, the area that they actually do their homework in and how important that is? Yeah, I, I think it's really individual to each child, just as it is for adults. Um, I think, you know, some adults, just like kids, can work in very, you know, messy spaces and it's fine and they don't notice. And other kids, they get distracted by this, that, or the other. Um, I think what's most important, and, and also some kids like to work around other family members because they like to ask them questions or they just like to feel that they have a that kind of company. Um, in general, we find that the younger students um, tend to do better when there's other people around, if they're working sort of in a shared space or perhaps in their room with the door open. Um, but what really works best is to sit down with your child and to say, okay, here, what, what are the things that you need for school? And what are the things that maybe you don't need for school? And help, and now is the perfect time to do it. Um, help them kind of do a spring cleaning. So like, if there are piles of baseball cards, as certainly are in my son's room right now, and Legos and what whatever, what, what have you, um, those can go sort of to a side area, because if those are on their desk while they're trying to do work, it can be really distracting. Um, and just in general, trying to have a kind of more quiet space can be really great. Um, for some kids when they're doing work, other kids, again, can work with loud noise or conversations going on around them. Um, my older son who's in third grade can, you know, listen to Hamilton while he's doing his math, which to me is totally astonishing, but like he's actually able to do it. And I think having that sort of stimulus actually really helps him. Whereas if he's just reading, he needs total quiet. So I think you sort of have to be attuned to what your child needs or what, um, what external environment they thrive under, both in terms of um, like physical organization and in terms of um, the sounds or the noise level around them as well. But just checking in with them as, um, as they're working is a really good idea. Yeah, I love that. And it's so funny because when my husband and I were both in grad school writing our dissertations and I needed the environment to be completely distraction-free 
you know, quiet, you know, as, as quiet as possible to study and just, you know, write. Mm-hmm. And he needed like music on and mm-hmm. he was like chewing gum and he was, doing, you know, so like you said, like we just learned, you know, in, in very different environments. And I think that helps even, I know you talk about in your book, we don't have time to talk about it today. Maybe we can do a part two, but, um, you know, about, you know, test prep and, and studying for a test and, you know, what the mm-hmm. best environment is for that and some, some strategies that you have for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that was for me, you know, when I was studying for a test, I needed to be at a library because if I was at home, I would be distracted with different things. I had to go to the right. library and actually study and have it quiet. Like I said, my husband was the exact opposite, um, you know, in that way. So I think just parents, like you said, being attuned to their child and their individual needs um, and really helping them do what they can to set up for success. Because um, I think that'll also help with, I know what you talk about in your book too, is procrastination and really helping them stay focused and, you know, getting the work done. So um, thank right. you. Oh, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. The only other thing I was going to add to that, and just, I think giving your kids a sense of awareness of how they learn best is really informative too. So just saying like, you know, I noticed that you, you work really well when, when, you know, your desk area is clean or when things are quiet, or it's okay that, you know, you like to listen to music while you're working, like just drawing awareness to what works for them will help them figure out again, how to best self-advocate, which is, really, um, the end goal of all of, of all of this in terms of, you know, not only the content of what they're learning in the classroom, but beyond as well. Absolutely. Well, I just admire the both of you. I love talking with the both of you. I'm so glad our, our paths cross. You have such great content in your book. You have such great advice for parents, very practical ways that parents can support their child for success when it comes to academics. Um, Brian, will you share really quick where um, people can find you, whether it's um, where they can find your book, where they can find you online and whatnot? Absolutely. So the book is called Taking the Stress Out of Homework. It is found where all books are found these days, which is primarily online, (laughs) I guess. But uh, please support your independent bookstores near where you live, if possible. So that's Taking the Stress Out of Homework by Abby Freireich and Brian Platzer. If you're in the New York area or are interested in remote tutoring, check out uh, nycteachershotutor.com for any help. And then check us out every week uh, on Tuesday morning, our column, Homeroom, uh, publishes at 6 a.m. in the Atlantic. So check us out, the book, the column, the company, and never hesitate to give us a shout. We love talking to parents. That's right. And you also um, are on social media, so they can find you that way if they want to um, check in with you there, which is amazing. Will you share your social media handle with everyone too? Absolutely. On Twitter, I am B Platzer. And on Instagram, I am Brian.Platzer. Abby? Uh, on Twitter, I am Freireich Abby. So that's F-R-E-I-R-E-I-C-H. It's a mouthful, Abby. And our, our uh, I think our Instagram handle, right, Brian, is at NYC Teachers Who Tutor. Yes, ma'am. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Everyone, please go out and get their book and um, have a great day, both of you. Thanks for chatting thank with us. Thank you so much. Kim. This was so much fun and very much looking forward to part two. Thank Such you. Such a pleasure. Bye, Kim. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for joining us today. I can't wait to have you back for more. Make sure to subscribe to the Parentologist Podcast so you don't miss an episode. And make sure to tell your friends. This podcast is not intended to be a replacement for therapy. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call 911.